Well, good morning. How are we today? Good. You never know how that's going to go. Sometimes it's just silence when you ask that question, so I rarely ask it. So good to see you guys. Uh, this side of Easter, this morning we're kicking off a new series um, called The God You Thought You Knew, um, and we're going to be moving straight through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start this morning, and we'll spend the next 13 weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount. As we do that, we're going to kick off some, uh, some weekday small groups that will be sermon-based small groups. So uh, those groups, you'll have an opportunity to, uh, to get in those groups and, and to discuss and to put legs on what we're learning on Sunday morning. For those of you who have, uh, have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew chapter 5. But uh, before we get there, I want to let you know a couple of things, remind you of a couple of things. Um, starting Sunday, May 2nd, we're going to do a, a six-week trial run of the 9 a.m. mask-only service, right? So we'll have the 9 a.m. and the 1030 uh, starting May 2nd, and we're going to give it about six weeks to see if we're able to, to minister to and care for people who um, are still uncomfortable, still maybe in high-risk categories, maybe they're not sure about the vaccines, for, for whatever case. Um, they, they feel more comfortable being at home. Uh, we had uh, at least enough attendance on Easter, which doesn't always, in fact, never translates to the Sunday after Easter. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. And so it'll be up to, up to you guys, up to the church, up to those that come. But we're going to give it a few weeks. I wanted to let you know that that's coming up. Also, next Sunday, uh, next Sunday, immediately after the service, is Newcomer's Reception. If you are newer to Lost Mountain, meaning if you started coming since we did the last Newcomer's Reception, um, and haven't been to one of those yet, man, we'd love for you to sign up and come. You can do that on the back of your connection card. You can let us know you want to come, and we'll send you a link early this week and let you uh, register for that. We do have child care and lunch provided, so it's like a no-excuse gathering, right? It's under an hour. We'll meet right in this, this room off the worship center at the back, but it gives you an opportunity to meet the staff, to hear some about who we are as a church, our history, our future, where we're going, and find out how to get more connected, ask any questions. And then May 1st, that's a Saturday morning. We will have uh, our next membership class. We have a, a number of you signed up for that already who've already expressed an interest in becoming a covenant member of Lost Mountain Baptist Church. So uh, we're excited uh, to see you there. That's Saturday, May 1st, 9 a.m. To, to noon. 9 a.m. to noon. Now, um, we're going to jump in here, and I've got two things to do this morning, always when you kick off a series, but especially when you kick off a series straight through a book or through a passage of Scripture. You've got to teach a portion of that, and you've got to introduce the entire section. So buckle up, because we're going to move this morning, right? We've got a lot to cover, but it's going to be a good morning. In 2018, uh, Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries came together to do a survey, to do a research project in the life of evangelical churches in the United States, and they called it um, the State of Theology. The State of Theology. What they were seeking to find out is how... How theologically formed are the people in our churches of our nation? Is there any level of deep discipleship that has really been going on and taking root? Uh, and the, the findings were not surprising, but a little disheartening. That there's not a, a wide base of theological understanding, even of the basic tenets, the core orthodox doctrines of Christian faith by men and women who profess to be evangelical Christians uh, in the church in the United States. I'll point out just a few of them to you this morning. When asked to agree or disagree 
to these statements, these were the responses. Agree or disagree, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, that's actually a, a fourth century heresy known as Arianism. Fourth century heresy known as Arianism. But 78% of surveyed evangelicals agreed with that. They agreed. They completely had no concept of the co-eternality of Christ with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. No idea of the pre-existent nature that Christ is eternal. If you flesh it out more, they had a, a, a weak to absolutely deluded understanding of the Trinitarian God. Startling, 70, almost 80% agreed that Christ was created. Stunning. One more, well, two more. Um, second one I'll point out to you, as to agree or disagree, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% of evangelicals agreed with this. 51% of professing evangelicals, active churchgoers, agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions. Last one I'll mention this morning, when asked to agree or disagree to the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. This is actually a 4th and 5th century heresy called Pelagianism. Pelagianism. And yet, 52% of professing evangelical Christians agreed with that. That while people sin a little bit, most people are by nature good. It's a denial of original sin of the biblical teaching that all of us are born fractured, right? We have both a propensity and a guarantee that when given the option, we will choose sin. It's startling, and part of the reason we're doing this series through the Sermon on the Mount is because we need to recenter ourselves biblically, doctrinally, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the very center of Jesus' teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Best known, probably least lived out, but most familiar portion of Jesus' teaching. It's the most thorough picture of what we get regarding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I just want to say a word about what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's deconstructing and reconstructing our understanding of who God is and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. New heaven, new earth. What does it mean to be a child of God. The people in Jesus' day, they had an understanding of that, but it was warped. And they didn't understand the nature of God behind the commandments of God. They didn't understand the heart of God behind the commandments of God. And Jesus, he, he's going to deconstruct what we think we know, and he's going to reconstruct an accurate picture of who God is. I, I saw an example of this Friday. I took... Um, uh, some of our kids, to uh, an indoor trampoline park thing in Kennesaw. And after it, we were all thirsty. Um, and so we were going to swing through Chick-fil-A and get something to drink over close to Kennesaw Town Center. And I pulled in the parking lot, and it, and it wasn't there anymore. It wasn't there. Um, the whole building in the parking lot was gone. And there was uh, groundwork being done and new piping and, and new foundation. And they had a sign that said, please excuse our mess. We're renovating. And I said, I think so. I think you are. When you rip out the entire building and the parking lot, you're most certainly renovating. But what they were doing was deconstructing and reconstructing Chick-fil-A there, right? 
And this is what Jesus is going to be doing. And I don't want you to confuse as we go through this series moralism with morality. Behaviorism with sanctification. There is, without any doubt, a moral construct, a moral reality to the Christian faith and the Christian life. But it is not moralism. There is orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right believing and right living. But moralism and behaviorism, as opposed to sanctification and morality, moralism and behaviorism says, I act a certain way in order to please God. I behave a certain way in order to be accepted by God. This is another reality that cropped up again and again throughout the research project, was that even, even professing evangelical Christians had a heavy belief in this, that there's a whole lot of appeasing God that must be done through our behavior. And that's not what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. What I want us to see this morning are three overarching realities they come up immediately in the Beatitudes, the section we'll cover this morning. Um, and they exist throughout our time, our 13 weeks, in the Sermon on the Mount. One is the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. One is the darkness of the Sermon on the Mount. And one is the key to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you the beatitudes begin the sermon on the mount but they are meant to layer all of the teaching that jesus gives us following this passage um, the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately the proclamation of the kingdom for citizens of the kingdom. And what's going on here is, is a mirroring of what's going on in Exodus with Moses following God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. If you remember that, Moses goes up on the mountain and he dwells there with God and the people gather around to hear from God through Moses. Except now, God has come to earth and Jesus disciples are gathering around him hearing directly from God and as we move in just a minute uh, through these beatitudes just briefly uh, I want to give you a statement I was thinking of how to, to to summarize the entire sermon on the mount because it's really important anytime you're doing a verse by verse study through a passage that you don't lose the flow and the movements the context of the 
those verses. And then I ran across a statement uh, from Tom Schreiner uh, in a New Testament theology that he'd written that was way better than I could come up with. So I just decided I'd put it in here and read it to you. Schreiner says this, Disciples have a distinct profile over against the world. They admit that they are poor in spirit, are peacemakers and merciful, endure persecution, do not hate those who mistreat them, they are not marked by lust and abuse of women, love their enemies, they do not practice religion for the praise of others, they trust God for their physical needs and do not judge others. They communicate their difference from the world and shine as witnesses in a dark world. That, in summary, is the Sermon on the Mount. It is both descriptive and prescriptive. It both describes the lives of followers of Jesus after conversion, after repentance and forgiveness of the sin, as regeneration, new birth takes place in our heart. We're made alive spiritually by the power of God. And God's Spirit is living in us. It describes the kind of life that we're called to live collectively. But it's also prescriptive. It's a challenge. There's an overarching command to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to see the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. Because what we just read from Tom Schreiner, who wouldn't want... See, here's what we want. We want people around us to live this way, right? Wouldn't you want your neighbors to live this way? Wouldn't you want the people at work to live this way? The people in your home to live this way? Wouldn't you love to go home to a house filled with peacemakers? People who are merciful, right? But we also know that this is a life we're called to live. And there's part of us, even in our fallenness, that yearns to live this kind of life. There's a beauty to it. There's a beauty to it. There's an integrity of this kind of love that only God can give human beings. And as the church lives this out, we become a community marked by this kind of life. There's a beauty to living as the Sermon on the Mount calls us to live and as the Beatitudes just described and set up for us. But what's the problem? We can't do it. Any of you struggle with any of that? Any of you struggle with being a peacemaker? Being mild? Being meek? Any of you struggle with being pure at heart? This is the darkness of the Sermon on the Mount. It is meant to unsettle us. It is meant to shock us. We've lost largely our ability, and the longer you're a Christian, the more we have to fight for this and pray for it, our ability to hear Jesus' words as his first hearers did. Uh, I found a little help from this this week. Virginia Stem Owens is a, a Christian writer who was a professor of literature at a number of different universities. And uh, she gave an assignment at a large state university, actually in the state of Texas, uh, which is one of the largest uh, universities in the country. And she assigned her literature class the Sermon on the Mount. They had to read it, and they had to write an essay on it. She said... Um, None of her students in this class had ever read it before. And only a handful had ever heard of it before. So she assigned this to them, and, and she said she was really surprised when she got their essays back, though she shouldn't have been. Because they did not find it very encouraging. Let me give you a couple of samples. 
One student in their essay said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. We've lost this, this sense of shock when we read this. We just sort of read it. We have it read over us. We go, I'm going to give it a good try. And that's about it. Another student said this, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I have ever heard. Virginia said that finally she realized that, that biblical literacy had illiteracy, I'm sorry, biblical illiteracy had come to a point where people in America are able to respond to Jesus without filtering him through 2,000 years of haze. In other words, these students were reading the Sermon on the Mount for the first time with fresh eyes, fresh ears, a fresh heart, and were startled by the life that Jesus was calling his followers to. They understood the darkness of the Sermon on the Mount, that none of them could live this out. It was impossible. It was impossible. I want to leave that there and just pray that by the Holy Spirit, by His power, you and I could see the beauty of it, but feel the reality of the darkness of it, that we fall short. You have broken this. You've broken it this morning. And many of you have the Spirit of God living in you. Right? I want to feel that darkness and just let it sit on us for just a minute. Let's go through the Beatitudes briefly. Look at verse 3. And I'll tell you this, the Beatitudes are ultimately divided into two parts, two sets of four. Some, uh, some commentators, scholars will say three, three sets. I, I just, I don't think they're right. Um, two sets of fours. And the first deal with our relationship with God, ultimately, though they bleed into the second. And the second deal, ultimately, with our relationship with others, though obviously they're tied to our relationship with God. Let's briefly walk through, through these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. The poor in spirit understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. Right? Most of us, when, when really quizzed hard, have this idea of God. If all of a sudden we were brought before God and had to give an account for our life, we immediately instinctively begin to go, well, I've done some bad stuff, but I've done a lot of good stuff too. So, you know, I know that you'll forgive the bad stuff. I need a little help over here, but I'm pretty good here. But Jesus said that's not the blessed life. That's not the life that God's called us to. That the blessed life comes to those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. Now when you declare bankruptcy, you're waving the white flag. You with me? You're waving the white flag. There's nothing you can do to fix your situation. And this is what Jesus is saying. And only, only Christians and those becoming Christians, those in the process of understanding and responding to Jesus have this understanding of being spiritually bankrupt, of saying, I bring nothing to the table, nothing at all. I have nothing to offer God. I'm absolutely dependent upon Him. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, when you, when you uh, connect the Sermon on the Mount with passages in Exodus, with passages in Isaiah, the picture we get here is one of brokenness, of financial and economic brokenness, of emotional brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are sitting, not just in their bankruptcy, 
but with a brokenness of spirit, they will be comforted. God draws near to the brokenhearted. He binds up the wounds of those who are hurting. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, we don't believe this. We don't. We believe blessed are the fast and the powerful and the successful. They will inherit the earth. In practice, out of our mouths, in our social media, this is what we say over and over we really believe. Blessed are the affluent, the militarily powerful, the dominant, those who climb the ladder, the successful, the CEOs. They will inherit the earth. And Jesus is deconstructing that. He's saying that's actually not true at all. Because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's an inside-out reality and an outside-in reality. What you typically think as a human being is the blessed life and the blessed people are not so. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The, the meek are those without power. Without any power. They're totally dependent upon God. I was thinking about this uh, this week. Uh, what it means, what it looks like, humanly speaking, to be poor in spirit to, to be meek and I was uh, just thinking uh, about uh, Ron Delaney and Randy Book and others that I've met here who who just display this they display hearts and minds changed by the power of God still working on them of course but there's a poverty of spirit there there's a meekness there that I think culturally and even within the church we just simply don't believe Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not want it a little, but hunger and thirst. I, I was a, a young 20-something before I ever knew what it was really like, truly, to thirst or to hunger. But when you hunger and you thirst, like you don't want to invent a, a, a new bottled water company when you're thirsty. When, when you're hungry, like, you don't want to buy stock in a seed company or order some seeds online and plant a garden. You want to find someone who can give you something to drink and something to eat. Does that make sense? How many of you can remember having your kids in athletics and uh, they finish a game or even a practice and they get in the car and the first thing they say is, is there anything to drink in here? They're thirsty. This is the picture of being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That we go to the one who makes us righteous. We go to the one in whose righteousness we're found. We run to God in Jesus Christ. This is, our, this is our posture toward God. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is obviously when we extend active grace to people in our lives. When we're not giving people what they deserve or what we think they deserve because we've not been given what we deserved. Which is a very good thing when it comes to God. Blessed are the merciful. They'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. How many of you have any hope at all to be pure in heart apart from the cleansing power of Jesus Christ? Not me. Not me. This is a picture of dealing with people in your lives in a way that has extreme integrity and love at the core. That what you say and what you do as you're interacting and as we're interacting with one another and with the world is never ever fueled with any portion of ill motive. Any of us feel like we could stand up to that test? 
for a day or two or three? Fully pure motives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Who are the children of God? They're the ones who are out and about in God's fractured, broken world making peace because they've had peace made for them. Between us and God and between us and one another, I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but between you and others. And if there's anything that our nation needs right now, it's less partisanship and polarization and more peacemakers. Even in the church, especially in the church, it's amazing how divided. It's amazing how everything we hear now, we, we, we filter through a political lens. As if all of the world is political, and it's not. And I so wish I could say to us, well, I guess I'm going to say to us, I know men and women who deeply love Jesus Christ are fully committed to the authority of Scripture and are pursuing their sanctification with grace-driven effort, and they're Democrats. And I know men and women who absolutely love Jesus Christ are committed to Him, to the authority of Scripture, take their sanctification seriously, and they're pursuing it in relationship with others through grace-driven effort, and they're Republicans. Maybe if you and I were as quick to try to listen and understand why others feel the way that they do, and I'm talking about in the body of Christ, we might share a little more of the characteristic of peacemakers than dividers. All right? Jesus just straight out says, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God because peacemaking is part of God's business. It's what God's about in and through Jesus Christ. And if we are the people of God, it is what we are about. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 10 and 11 constitute really one, one beatitude. Jesus is just fleshing it out here. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely, that's an important word, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If you're just a jerk, then you're just a jerk, right? If people don't like you and they verbalize that because you are a jerk, you got no blessing from God. But Jesus is saying, if it's due to righteousness, if it's due to the fact that you've been clothed in the, clothed in the character and nature of Jesus Christ, and you view the world through the lens of his teaching and his life, if it's because of that that people persecute you, and that they falsely say all kinds of evil against you, then rejoice, you're blessed. Verse 12 says, be glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying you are revealing yourself to be sons and daughters of God. Now, I think this is another thing we struggle with. We struggle with accepting. It's a very modern thought that, that we're not going to pay a, Christ, a price for our faith. It's a very modern Western thought uh, that as, as men and women of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be at the center of of power and influence and authority in a culture or society. The way of God is never the way of popularity. The way of God is never the way of popularity. But can you imagine, can you imagine a life characterized by just the Beatitudes? Just the first few verses of the sermon 
on the mount. What beauty there. There's a reason Jesus said we'll shine like stars in the night, like a city set on a hill. We'll be salt invading everything we touch and every space we come into, flavoring it, changing it. But there's a darkness to it because we can't do it. Which brings us really to the key, to the key of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the, the guys that, that I just immerse myself in consistently, and you've heard me quote before uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones is his full name, but I think that's too many names. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, that, that great 20th century British preacher, uh, who preached a, a long, we're going to do 13 weeks. He did many more weeks through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, all of his sermons and his thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount are contained in a book called Studies on the Sermon on the Mount uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd but he died, um, he died in the 80s. And Lloyd-Jones lived through that, that era, not so much in the 19th, but, but through the mid and late 20th century, where um, a lot of discussion in the church was mirroring society, uh, where you would find, in places where people were free to be honest, them saying things like this, well... Um, yes, we trust in Christ, but we're modern people, right? We're sophisticated. We, we've had this, the, the scientific revolution. Uh, we're, we're people of technology now. We know that you can't believe like the miracles and some of the stuff that, that is found throughout the Bible. You just, you just need to live a life of love and, and live what, what Jesus taught. But anybody that says something like that has never read what Jesus taught because you can't live it. And what Mark Lloyd-Jones said, and I think he's absolutely right, is that the, the ethical descriptions and prescriptions of the Sermon on the Mount will absolutely crush us if we forget that the Beatitudes are meant to reveal to us that the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible except by men and women who, whose lives have been changed. That the doing of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll spend the next 12 following weeks looking at is impossible without the, the being of poor in spirit and meek, and righteous, and merciful, and so on and so forth. That happens as a result of a changed heart. The key to the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ himself. Is the one who's giving the Sermon on the Mount. Is the new and better Moses, who was able to come and do what the law could never do. The law could never give us the power to obey it. And to the degree that we can obey, we get proud. But Jesus Christ came, and he did. He was the one who was perfectly poor in spirit, the one who mourned. Remember Lazarus? Any of you remember that story? Jesus mourns with his friends over his friend, knowing that he's about to raise him from the dead. He demonstrated meekness. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. And he didn't have to hunger and thirst for righteousness because he was righteousness. But you know what he hungered and thirsted for in the garden? To be obedient to the will of the Father. <laughs> he was and is fully merciful, pure in heart, the peacemaker. And he was fully persecuted. He was given no mercy, not by Pilate, not by the Jews, not by the Romans, so that you and I could be extended the mercy of God. Without understanding 
that Jesus is the only one that makes the kind of life that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to and says, this is what it looks like to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Without understanding that Jesus Christ is the only one who empowers us to do that, you and I, in the moments where we have enough clarity by God's grace to understand the gravity and weight of this teaching, will simply crumple underneath it. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, living and at work. And those of us who are believers, little by little, step by step, day by day, season by season, we have the opportunity to cooperate with the work of God in our lives and to experience sanctification, the transformation of our character, our heart, our mind, so that we're not just trying to do better, we're becoming different kinds of people. The desires of our hearts are being changed. The difficulty of preaching through a text like this is that we could do four, six, eight weeks just on the Beatitudes. I want to encourage you to listen to this message again this week and to read all the way through the Sermon on the Mount before we come back together next week because it's not just something we should read. It's not just something we should hear taught. It's something that should interrupt us and call us to deeper devotion to Jesus Christ and dependence on Him. Dallas Willard writes this in his phenomenal book called The Divine Conspiracy where he uh, deals almost primarily with the Sermon on the Mount. He says, along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, and a very few other passages from the Bible, the Beatitudes are acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. We can savor them, affirm them, meditate upon them, and engrave them on plaques to hang on our walls. But a major question remains, how are we to live in response to them? Willard's argument, and I think he's exactly right, is that we, we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as we live in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Not as we talk about being peacemakers, but as we actively work to make peace between individual people and between people and God as we point them to the Savior. As we actively forgive and show mercy, as we extend grace, as we give generously, trusting God as our provider, we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. My desire is that the Sermon on the Mount will get deeply in us over the next 12, 13 weeks. Uh, in, in, in 2010, and I'll close with that, uh, a man named Ron Sfedden, Ron Sfedden, who was a retired school teacher, 75 years old, in Brewster, Massachusetts, had been battling emphysema for a little while. And it was getting worse and worse and worse all of a sudden really quickly. He was, uh, he was restless, he couldn't breathe well, he was having problems, and his wife Nancy called 911 and he was taken to the hospital. Um, x-rays showed that he had a collapsed lung and a gray spot in one of his lungs. The next couple of weeks um, he had a, a lot more testing done and then went back in to meet with his pulmonologist, fully expecting to hear 
a diagnosis of lung cancer. But when he went in, to his surprise, it was not lung cancer. He had swallowed a green pea that went down the wrong way. And it had landed somehow in his lung and found a warm, moist environment there. And it had taken root and began to grow. And at the time of his surgery the next week when they removed it, it was nearly an inch tall. His pulmonologist said, I wasn't really shocked. That's not the first growth I had removed from someone's lung, from a seed or, or some kind of food having gone down wrong and finding just the right soil for growth. My desire as we go through the Sermon on the Mount week by week, for many of you who are already familiar with this passage and this portion of Jesus' teaching, is not just that we'll hear it again or be moved by it, but that by God's mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit, it would get all the way down in us and find in our hearts fertile soil to take root and to produce spiritual growth in our lives. We are utterly, completely, and forever dependent upon God for that. Let's stand and pray.